But today, as I mentioned earlier in the service, we're continuing a series called Better Together. And last week we talked about having a personal devotion and having a public devotion. And one of the ways that we said that last week was that God wants to do a work in this house for your heart. And at the same time, God wants to do a work in your heart for this house. Let me just explain quickly what I mean by example. This morning, several of our students are away at winter retreat. And they were in service Friday night. They were in service Saturday morning, Saturday night. They're in service again this morning. And, and our teenagers will be coming back this afternoon with uh, Chris, uh, Merrill, and, and Val. They're, they're taking the students on this weekend. And, and here's my prayers. I'm praying for them this morning. I found myself praying for the other students, a part of our youth ministry that didn't go on the event. And I'm believing that God is going to do something, that he is doing something in their hearts at that winter retreat that is going to impact the rest of the student ministry in the rest of this year. Shortly after I prayed that prayer, I got evidence that that is exactly what God is up to. I got a text message from Val, and they were in a service emphasizing missions, and she said, our students just made a pledge for this year to give $1,060 in 2017 to missions. I said, praise God. Praise God. He put that in them. Nobody told them this is your assignment. God stirred that in their hearts, and they're going to come back with a passion and a fire to do something for the kingdom of God. That's what I'm talking about when I say God wants to do a work in your heart for the house. And today I want to talk to you about another way that I believe we're better together. And that is in the area of evangelism. Now I don't know what, what comes to your mind when you think about evangelism. Maybe it's somebody standing up here like I am and, and preaching a message. Maybe you think of a, a full-time evangelist, somebody like uh, Brother Ron who travels and, and preaches revivals and crusades all over the world. Maybe you picture somebody, you know, on a street corner with an accordion and a guitar and, you know, holding up a sign or something telling people they need to, you know, turn or burn. I, I don't know what your thought is about evangelism, but let me just give you a working definition to get us on the same page this morning. One person defines evangelism as the conscious attempt through word and deed to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others so that they can become disciples of Christ. Evangelism is simply through word and deed leading other people towards Christ, so that they can become followers of Christ. Listen, when we love God and when we love people correctly, when we do it right, it's going to impact a watching world around us. And I want us to go uh, to the book of Colossians for a couple of moments at the beginning of this message. little small letter from the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, Colossians chapter 1. Because this is exactly what Paul encourage the church to do when he he was talking about loving God and loving people he's talking about evangelism he's talking about influence and what it really means to be the body of Christ Paul says these words in Colossians chapter 1 beginning in verse 3 he says we always thank God the father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus And the love you have for all God's people. He says, here's what we've heard about. We've heard about your faith in Christ Jesus. And the love that you have for all the people. 
Now listen, loving all the people doesn't just mean loving the people you like. That means loving all the people. And it doesn't just mean loving the people that are just like you or loving the people that, that go to your church. He said, when you, when you have faith in God and you love all of the people, it testifies. And Paul said, we heard about that. We heard about that in your life. And I just want to emphasize at the beginning of this message that, <coughs> that better together is not a rally cry for uniformity. It's not a call that says we ought to all be the same. How many of you know that unity is not uniformity? It's not a call that we should all be the same. In fact, unity is exemplified even more when there's diversity. The more diverse, the more eclectic we are, the more different we are, and yet we still have love for all the people. It communicates even more that we have faith in Christ. And so the two go hand in hand. Faith in Christ, our Lord, and love for all the people. In fact, you know, before I even came to this church... The Lord was dealing with me about the church that we would pastor and, and he put it on my heart and he put it on my wife's heart that it would be a, a diverse church, that it would be a, a multi-ethnic church. Now, when we got here and we found out the Lord planted us in Wrightsville and we did a little um, study of the uh, demographics, we had to kind of laugh because we discovered Wrightsville is 98% Caucasian. And so we thought, well... I don't know how that really fits in, Lord, with uh, what you put in our heart. But he put it, put it clearly in our heart that we were going to be leading a church that would be multi-ethnic and multi-generational. And the reason that that is so uh, ingrained in our heart and it's still a prayer in our heart is because we want the church to reflect the kingdom of God. I, I believe the church on a Sunday morning when you look around, it ought to be a microcosm of heaven. That when people see what's happening in the church, people from every generation and from different ethnicities coming together to create a culture and an atmosphere of heaven on earth. You know, Jesus said, when you pray, pray uh, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As I read the headlines, I don't see too many places in the earth that God's will is being done except in the church. The church is the place where the will of God is done on the earth and through the church as it is in heaven. And so we want to see a, a diverse church. In fact, right now we're, we're praying and uh, Brother Isaac and I have been meeting together and we're seeking God to give us a plan uh, because we believe God is calling us to create a ministry here for Arabic-speaking people. We have several families in this congregation that, that are from Egypt. And they know a lot of people in this area that don't have a Bible-believing church. And so we're praying and saying, God, what do you want us to do to help to reach uh, with inroads into that culture and into that community? God is calling us to, to have faith in Christ and to love all the people. The call to togetherness is not a call to sameness, but it's a call to a biblical foundation that we can build on. So here's what I've discovered. As I pursue the cross, as I get closer to Jesus, I find myself closer to other people that are also pursuing the cross. I don't have to spend a lot of time and energy working on uh, interpersonal relationships and, and, and all of that. Not as much when I'm focused on the cross, when I'm focused on mission. You know, I was a youth pastor for 16 years, and it never ceased to amaze me how we could take students on a, a weekend fun trip, you know, whether it was just a, a weekend retreat in the, in the mountains or, or whatever, and, and they, would, they would drive us crazy. 
I mean, they would be pulling each other's hair out, getting on each other's nerves, couldn't wait to get out of the van. But we'd take that same group of students on a mission trip, and there was peace, and there was harmony, and there was love, and there was unity. Same kids, same personalities. The difference was, in one trip, they were just thinking about themselves and having a good time, and on the other trip, they were mission-minded. They were on purpose, and when we live missionally, God draws our hearts together. Can somebody say amen to that today? Amen. Authentic Christian community is a byproduct of biblical Christianity. I believe that. You know, I'm spending several weeks talking about better together. And if I believe that that unity is a byproduct of biblical Christianity, it, it might beg the question, then why do we even have to preach about it? Why do we have to preach about it if it's just a byproduct of having Christian community? I believe we have to preach about it because, let's be honest, we live in a very self-centered world. We live in a me-centered world and we have developed a very me-centered version of the gospel. The truth is, a lot of us buy into a gospel that, that is <clears throat> focused on me, myself, and I. We, we change churches quickly in this culture if things don't work personally for us. Many people treat the church like a buffet line. They read the Bible like it's a buffet line. They find the parts they want, they pick over the parts they don't want. We look at the church like a, a country club. I, I pay my dues and then I get my rewards. And that's not how the Bible communicates Christianity is supposed to be lived out. I want to encourage you this morning <clears throat> towards biblical Christian community. That's exactly what Paul was trying to communicate to the Colossians. There, if you're still in Colossians chapter 1, if you, if you go over and look at chapter 3, Paul makes some statements about what the gospel is. It's not something he says that just should be added to your life. That, that your church life and your relationship with Jesus is not something that you just amalgamate into to whatever you're already doing. Because that was what the tendency was in Colossae as it is in America. But Paul says this in Colossians 3 in verse 4. He said, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him. In glory. Paul was saying, Jesus is. He is your life. Many places throughout his letter, he talks about the sufficiency of Christ, that he is all in all. At another place, when Paul was preaching to Greek philosophers on Mars Hill, he was speaking there in Athens, and he, he said these words about God. He said, in him we live and move and have our being. That Jesus is not just something that we add on. Those Greek philosophers spent all their time just talking about the, the different gods, the different religions, the, the different beliefs. And Paul comes on the scene and he says, even as one of your own poets has said, we are his offspring. We're the children of God. <clears throat> I want to encourage you this morning because if we, don't, if we don't get the foundation right, then we can't build a strong church. But if we get the foundation right, if we build on, on the truth of this word, we're going to be able to build something that's lasting and significant and something that is even evangelistic. 
to this world. Go back quickly to Colossians chapter 1. I want you to see something there in that passage of Scripture. In fact, I want to read verse 3 and 4 again, and then we'll go to 5. Paul writes, he says in Colossians 1, 3, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Because, here's why, here's why we're thankful, he says, Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all God's people. Now look at verse 5. He says, The faith that you have in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for one another, it springs from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and about which you already heard in the true message of the gospel. I don't know if you like to underline things in your Bible, but I underlined those words, the true message of the gospel. That's what faith in Christ Jesus and love for God's people springs out of. If you don't have, if you haven't bought into the true gospel, the true gospel of Jesus Christ, then maybe you're struggling to have faith in Christ Jesus. You know, there's a lot of people that they would just, uh, they would live by the, the Beatles song, All We Need Is Love. They would say, love all God's people. That's, that's the thing. We gotta love everybody. But they don't have faith in God. That's not the true gospel. There's other people, unfortunately, and don't look at them if you're sitting near them, but they, they're all for faith in God. They, they, they believe the Bible. It's all about me and Jesus, but they don't, they don't demonstrate love for all God's people. And can I tell you, that is not the true gospel either. But Paul writes to Colossians, he says to us, he says, look, the, the true gospel out of that springs forth love for God. Love for God's people. Out of that springs forth a faith in Jesus Christ. <coughs> That's the true message of the gospel. Can I tell you something about the gospel that maybe you haven't thought of and maybe you didn't come to hear this morning, but I think we need to be reminded. The gospel is not about you. It's not about me. Sometimes we believe it is because when we share the gospel, we make it personal. We say, Jesus died for you. Jesus loves you. He wants to forgive you of of your sins. He wants to come into your heart. And those are all true statements. Those are powerful statements. We need to know those statements. But we can get it twisted sometimes if we start to think that the gospel is about us. I won't have you turn here for time's sake, but all through the Bible, in the New Testament, it refers to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Mark chapter 1, in, in Mark 1 again, it says the gospel of God. Luke says the gospel of the good news of the kingdom of God. All through the gospels, it's, it's all about Him. There's only one place, in fact, where the scripture says to us, the gospel of your salvation. And it is a gospel of our salvation, but it's not about us. The gospel's for me, but it's not about me. Maybe you just seem a little sleepy this morning, but can we say that together? Say, the gospel is for me, but it's not about me. It's important that we get that perspective. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've heard people make decisions about what they're going to do in response to the gospel based on what they'd like to do. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, opinions about where you want to go to eat after church today. I'm talking about clear commands of God's word. And yet people respond to the clear commands of God's word with a 
preferential response. Well, I'm just not really into that. But the, but the Bible says we're, we're supposed to do that. Yeah, but that's not really my thing. And we have this, this buffet mentality of responding to God's word. I want to tell you this morning, we're better together. But it's not just better for me. It's not we're better together for your sake or we feel better. We're better together for the glory of God because the gospel is about the glory of God. We're better together for a world that is searching. Maybe they don't know the name they're searching for, but they're searching for something to fill the void of emptiness in their life. And his name is Jesus and we know him and we can point them that way. And we are better together for the sake of a lost and a dying world. I want to take you to a scripture this morning that's probably very familiar to a lot of you, but it's in Matthew chapter 5. And I want to just settle in on a couple of verses today. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13 and 14. Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about what the kingdom of God is like. He's teaching about prayer. He's teaching, teaching about forgiveness. And Jesus looks at his disciples in Matthew 5 and he says these words, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Then he goes on to say in verse 14, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. I brought something with me this morning. This is a gift that was given to me by some of our Assembly of God missionaries. John and Darlena Bean are missionaries in Slovakia. And many of you know in November I had the opportunity to go there and to minister with them among the Roma gypsy community in Slovakia. And Darlena gave me this as a gift. She said, this is a, a, a traditional item you would find sitting on the table of most homes in Slovakia. I said, well, what is it? She said, it, it's, it's a salt dish. And the custom is that they would take the salt dish and it just sits on the table. And when people come to your home, just as an act of hospitality, they would serve bread. And the salt would be there on the table so that you could just sprinkle some salt on the bread. And they eat it that way. And so she gave us this little salt dish. And what I love about it is that on the side it has engraved in Slovakian Matthew 5.13. That reminds us you are the salt of the earth. I was thinking about this little salt dish that now sits in our kitchen and I just wondered, what would it be like if, if you came to my house and we set the dish out, but we didn't give you any bread with it? We just said, welcome to our home. Please come down. Enjoy. And you open it up and there's a cute little spoon in there for you to enjoy some salt. How many of you know that wouldn't be very hospitable? I mean, I, I, I love salt, but even somebody that loves salt a lot, I don't see anybody eating it by the spoonful. Because everybody knows, it doesn't matter what culture you come from, we understand that salt is not the main thing. It's an accent. It's not the main thing. Now, now let's read that verse again. You are the salt 
of the earth. Can I just tell you that self-centeredness ruins the flavor of the gospel? You're not the main thing. I'm not the main thing this morning. And so when we preach Christ in a me-centered culture, we have to be careful that we're not presenting a me-centered version of Christianity. I heard one man say it this way. He said, immaturity is the Trojan horse of the church. And part of that is because we have, we have bought in to a gospel that says, Jesus, take up your cross and follow me. But we're not the main thing. And Jesus has called us to take up our cross and to follow him. Ask yourself this morning, what are you doing right now in obedience to God that requires selflessness? What area of your life are, are you doing something? And it's not motivated by convenience or personal preference, but it's simply an act of obedience to God. Some of you just a few minutes ago, as we passed the offering plates, you sacrificially gave. There was a, a something inside of you that's inside of all of us. It's called the sinful nature. Could also be called the selfish nature because that's the human nature. And something in you wanted to pull back and say, you know what? I got this bill. I got that coming up. But you out of obedience said, you know what? I'm going to just put God first in my finances. And you gave. That, that's a, that's an act that's built on a biblical foundation and not a selfish foundation. How do you process your decisions this morning? Do you process it with, do I want to do this or is this what God wants me to do? I want to tell you just quickly three things about salt. Three things that salt was intended to do that I think we ought to know because we are the salt of the earth. Here they are. First of all, salt flavors food. Secondly, salt's a preservative. And third, it makes people thirsty. Let me tell you. What Matthew 5.13 says in the message translation. I, I like reading this. I'll read it to you out of the message. Talking about how salt flavors food. It says, let me tell you why you are here. You are here to be salt seasoning that brings out God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and you will end up. In the garbage. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? In Psalm 34, David said, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How are people going to taste the goodness of God? Well, more often than not, it's going to be through the saltiness of the body of Christ. It's going to be through the people of God who are the God flavoring in the earth. Salt. Enhances the flavor in every relationship, in every, every situation you find yourself in. You know, I've often heard people talk about secular, uh, jobs, uh, and being in a secular workplace. Well, I, you work in the church, but I'm in the secular workplace. Listen, one of the definitions of secular is just to be void of God's presence. If, if that's a good definition, then I don't know about you, but I've never been in a secular place. Because I have Jesus on the inside of me. So as soon as I show up, it's not secular anymore. It's seasoned. It's flavored. It's now a workplace that's influenced by the presence of God. 
The Bible says that we are the flavor of God in the earth. Salt is a preservative. Can I tell you this morning that this world is bound for destruction? I don't want to get apocalyptic on you here, but the reality is from Scripture, this world is bound for destruction. But the church is a preservative in the earth. We are the salt of the earth. Listen, I've already said this. The gospel is for you, but it's not about you. But can I also say today, it's not about you, but it is up to you. It's not about you, but it is up to you. Jesus said, I... He was the salt of the earth. He said, I am the light of the world. But when Jesus knew that he was going to be ascending back to heaven, he knew he was going to be leaving this earth in bodily form. He looked at his disciples and and threw them to us. And he said, now you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. It's not about you, but it's up to you. I can say that this morning with confidence because of what the Bible tells us will happen when we're gone. The church isn't going to be here forever. The Bible says that Jesus is coming again. He's coming. The Bible says no one knows the time or the hour of his appearing. But the Bible also communicates to us that the moment we're gone, the moment the church leaves this earth, that all of the sudden the grace of God is going to be gone and the judgment of God will begin to unfold in the world. There's going to be no more light. There's going to be no more preservative. There's going to be no more salt in the earth. Church, I believe that the rapture of the church is the next event on God's end time calendar. He's coming again. And the rapture of the church is like the opening paragraph in the last chapter of a book. We're living in a dispensation of grace. But that chapter is going to come to a close. And when the rapture of the church takes place, all of a sudden, the judgment of God is going to be manifest in the earth. And we're going to miss it. Thank God. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians that we're not going to experience the wrath of God. Let me read this verse to you in chapter 5 and verse 9. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. I'm not worried about the wrath to come for my sake, but I am worried about it for the sake of others. Because the Bible says when the church is gone, the rapture of the church will be the onset of the judgment of God in the earth. But as long as we're here, as long as Jesus Terry's his coming, and we're here, and we're in the earth. We're the preservative. There's still hope for salvation. And, and maybe you're here, and you go, man, I just wish Jesus would come. I, I don't know why he hasn't come. I mean, I grew up in church. I listened to my granddad preach that Jesus is coming soon. And, and then my, my dad preached Jesus is coming soon. And if you're like me, now I'm preaching Jesus is coming soon. Hey, when's Jesus coming? Soon. Have you ever just wondered, really, when is Jesus coming? The Bible tells us why he hasn't come yet. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance 
But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. (laughs) Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? That's a good question for the church on Sunday morning. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where the righteous dwell. Can I tell you the only reason this morning that Jesus hasn't come is for the sake of those who are perishing. He says he's not slow in keeping his promises. He's he's held off so that more may come to know him. There's one reason that the church is still in the earth today. We're a preservative for those that don't know Jesus yet because the moment we're gone, judgment is coming. The opportunity for grace is gone. But we're the preservative in the earth. You know, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 24, this gospel shall be preached the gospel of the kingdom in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. The gospel's going to go to every nation. You know that word nation means people group. I just read an article this past week about the World Mission Summit that took place for college-age students in the Assemblies of God just last week. Down in Houston, Texas, there were 6,000 students that gathered together to hear God's heart for the world. 6,000 students. And one of those speakers stood up in that meeting and he said, I want to announce to you that there are 6,000 of you that are here for this World Mission Summit. And there are 6,000 unreached people groups still in the earth today. We have the potential of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth and fulfilling the last requirement for the coming of the Lord. And I'm glad to testify that just in that gathering, over 2,000 college students within the Assemblies of God answered in response to the call and said, I'll give a year of my life and I'll pray about a lifetime of going to the nations. You know, we can say he's coming soon, he's coming soon, and then we can kind of rock back into a place of complacency because we've heard that all of our lives. But I want to promise you, we are closer than we've ever been to the coming of the Lord. And I do believe this generation of young people is going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's going to happen. We're a preservative. We ought to understand that God has kept us here for a reason. He's kept us here for a reason. And one of those reasons is to make people thirsty. That's what salt does. Now, we're certainly better together at this than we are by ourselves. I want you to look at what Jesus said about our unity when it comes to adding God flavoring in the earth. In John chapter 13, in verse 35, he said, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If you love one another, everyone's going to know you're my disciples. If we have faith in Christ and love for all God's people, out of that, it springs forth out of a biblical foundation. He said that's the most compelling thing about the church. That's what's going to entice people. It's going to whet their appetite to know God when they see the way that you love one another. 
And when our lives demonstrate that we know that we belong to God and that we found acceptance in God's family, our faith, it becomes contagious. People thirst for it because everybody, it, it's, the, it's the great theological question. Who is God and what does he want from me? And the church has the answer to that question. When we know whose we are and we have a love for God and for God's people, the world sees that acceptance. They see that it's attractional. That's the way the church ought to be. We're better together at evangelism because we have faith in God and we love God's people. That second verse that I read you out of Matthew 5 says that we're not only the salt of the earth, but we're also a light to the world. And I just want to talk for a moment about the light. Let me read that verse to you out of the message translation. (coughs) Eugene Peterson writes it like this. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. Can I state the obvious today and just say that we're living in a time that is more easier than ever before to be seen. I mean, we, we live in the, the Facebook, Instagram world where everybody and anybody can be seen at any moment. But the reality of the church is our problem is not illumination. We don't have a problem being seen. The problem is focus. You can tell the difference that focus makes when you just look at light. When you diffuse light, it has very little impact. But how many of you, when you were kids, you took a a magnifying glass and you found one of the rays of the sun and you directed the ray of the sun and you focused it in on a a piece of paper or on a leaf or or on an ant? I can tell some of y'all knows what happens when you focus light. It becomes powerful. It, it makes a difference. When you, you can have a, a, a light focus so much into a laser that it'll cut through steel. Light is powerful. And for the church, we are the light of the world. Our issue is not illumination. Our issue is focus. Because we have an opportunity to share the gospel in our generation like never before. But unfortunately... Our light, it's either diffused by division or distraction. The light of the gospel is diffused in the church by division when we argue about things that don't matter. When we just, we we get so distracted and we, we fight over things that don't even matter. That's division. Distraction comes when, when we ignore issues that do matter. How many of you know there are some issues that the church ought to be involved in? And we can get so distracted by, by things that don't even matter that we miss out on the things that we're called to bring light to, that we're called to, to shine a light on, and we don't do it because we're distracted or, or we're divided because of things that don't matter, we're arguing about. I, I get weary of Christians ranting at Christmas time about People saying happy holidays or not putting Christmas trees on the cups at Starbucks. And, you know, we, we, we just get, we get divided. The light gets diffused. 
just be, it, it's not effective, it's not powerful because we're not focused. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of issues even this week. You don't have to look beyond this week's calendar in our culture to see opportunities for the church to be light. You know, this Friday, we're going to have the inauguration of a new president. This is an opportunity for the church to shine a light. Do you know the Bible has some things to say about our leaders in government? Let, let me just quickly give you a couple of verses because this is an area where as the church we have an opportunity to be better together at evangelism. If we are careful not to diffuse the light with distracting issues or divisive issues. The Bible says in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 20 and 21. He said, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He, God, changes the times and the seasons. He deposes kings and he raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. You know, there's a lot of Americans that were shocked and some that are still in denial that Donald Trump was elected as president. But can I tell you this morning that God was not surprised? He wasn't at all shocked by the events that took place in November. In fact, the Bible tells us very clearly that God made a way for Donald Trump to be president of the United States. Now some of you going, hold on, close the book, I'm out. What did he just say? Listen. Either we believe in the sovereignty of God or we don't. I'm not talking about picking and choosing from the buffet line of a me-centered gospel. I'm talking about trusting what God's word says. And here's what it says to us. God deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. So we need to be careful that we don't get so wrapped up in the entrapments of politics that that our light is shining on an elephant or a donkey and not on the lamb amen god is sovereign he's sovereign franklin franklin graham said it like this he said no one should think that electing donald trump can fix our country and i'll say amen america is still a sin saturated and divided nation and trump himself is a leader with human flaws Elections matter, and this one will have lasting consequences. But only God can heal and restore a nation. And that comes through committed, faithful prayer. Can I tell you today, if if you put your confidence in in the government, and, and I'm talking about this because we're called to be light, and the church's light has been diffused on this issue. We ought to be a beacon but we've been diffused because we've been distracted or divisive. But if we're going to be light, we've got to know what the Word says. And if you've put confidence in, in putting our hope for the future in, in a person or a personality, we've done exactly what the children of Israel did. And the Bible says in Hebrews that their story is there to serve as a reminder and a signpost for us so that we can learn from their hard knocks. Here's what happened in their story. The Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 8 that the people had cried out to Samuel the prophet to give them a king. Give us a king to lead us, they said. And the Bible says this displeased Samuel. 
So he prayed to the Lord. Listen to this verse. First Samuel chapter eight, verse seven. And the Lord told him, Samuel, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected. It is me that they have rejected as their king. So God gave them a king. God gave them someone. Now they may have thought they chose Saul. They may have thought they picked the guy they wanted to be the king. But the Bible's very clear. They didn't choose their king. God appointed their king. It says so in 1 Samuel 12, 13. It says, now here is the king that you have chosen. But listen to the next part. The one you ask for. See the Lord has set a king over you. Yeah, I know you asked for him. I know you chose him, but the Lord has set him over you. And they had a king that had no governing authority or no governing experience. And God made no promises to him. No promises that things were going to work out for the king. No promises that things were going to work out for the nation. Instead, Samuel presented the people with God's pathway to success. He said, if you want it to work, here's what you have to do. And he put responsibility on the king, but he also put responsibility on the people, on the nation. And here's what he said to him in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 14. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord, good. But if you do not obey the Lord, and if you rebel against the Lord's commands, his hand will be against you, and as it was against your ancestors. So after going through the whole process of, of appointing a king and, and, and saying, okay, this is the one you chose, God set him over you. Samuel makes a personal commitment. And this, this is why I'm telling you this story, because this is where we need to be as the light bearers in this nation. Samuel said, here's what I'm going to do. It's found in 1 Samuel 12, verse 23. Look at it with me. He said, as for me, here's my resolve. As a, a man of God, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And I will teach you the way that is good and right. Can I just remind you this morning, whatever side of the political aisle you fall on, because the Bible is our foundation of truth, you have an obligation to pray for those in leadership, in government. We have an obligation to pray for those in positions of leadership. Paul said it very clearly. You don't have to be speculative about this at all. You just have to read the word. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. I urge you, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Let me clarify in verse 2. He says, for kings and all those who sit in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and it pleases God our Savior. We have a, a mandate from Scripture to pray for those in authority, to pray for government officials, to pray for our leaders. And a lot, of, a lot of Christians, they would read a verse like that that says, live at peace and quiet lives. And they would, they would say that a verse like that emphasizes that we should just be passive and uninvolved in political issues, not speak out about anything. But I, w- I would dare to say that, that that's a stretch of that text. If you look throughout Scripture, we can see that there is a place and there is a time for the body of Christ to be active, to be a voice in the culture, 
Think about John the Baptist. John the Baptist took a stand on a political issue. He took a stand on the sanctity of marriage. Because Herod the Tetrarch had taken his brother's wife as his own. And John called him out at, at the risk of being in prison. He stood for the sanctity of marriage. It, it ended up costing him his life. He was beheaded in a prison cell. His head delivered on a platter to Herodias' daughter. But he took a stand for issues. We ought to take a stand for issues that matter to God. Not diffuse the light with stuff that is unessential. But if it matters to the heart of God, if it springs forth out of the biblical foundation of God's word, we ought to take a stand on those issues. You know, today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. Today's a day that was set aside under the Reagan administration as a day to honor the sanctity of human life. Now, for some people, that's just a a political issue, pro-life or pro-choice. But can I tell you, it's a biblical issue. It's a biblical issue. The Bible commands us in Proverbs chapter 31 and verse 8. It says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. We, We have a call by God to protect life. Whether it's life in the womb, whether it's a comatose life, we have a a call by God, a mandate to protect life. Because every life, no matter if it's young or old or responsive or unresponsive, every life has the image of God on it. It's the fingerprint of God. had a difficult conversation with a family just recently about life support. And we... Our conversation fell back to the core issue of who is the author of life. That's really, when we talk about the sanctity of life, that's the issue that we're talking about. Are we making our decisions based on God's God's authorship of life or on our own? You know, another thing that's happening this weekend, you don't have to look beyond the calendar to see opportunities we have to hold up the light. We're celebrating Martin Luther King Day. This weekend, you know, I I read something interesting from a sermon of his in 1954. The sermon was called Transformed Nonconformist. Here's what he said. He said, the Christian is called upon not to be like a thermometer conforming to the temperature of this society, but he must be like a thermostat serving to transform the temperature of his society. Dr. King said this, he said, I have seen many white people who sincerely opposed segregation and discrimination, but they never took a real stand against it because of fear of standing alone. I want to tell you, there is power when we stand together. We are better together, but it starts with a conviction that is willing to stand up all by yourself. A conviction that says, look, this is a principle that is not based on what the crowd is saying or what the culture is doing. This is a principle that's founded on God's word. And as we stand for those principles, what we're going to find is unity is the byproduct of Christian living. We're going to find that we're not standing alone. That there is, in fact, a multitude of people standing, holding up the same light because we're following God's word. You know, it was a year after he preached that message. 
that just five blocks away from the pulpit where he preached it, a transformed nonconformist boarded the Cleveland Avenue bus. When the white section of the bus filled up, the bus driver told Rosa Parks to get out of her seat in the black section of the bus and give that seat up for other passengers. She politely stayed in her seat and refused. By taking a stand, or by taking a seat rather, she, she took a stand. Rosa Parks stand against racial segregation started a ripple effect. It led to a court battle, which led to a citywide boycott, which led to the Supreme Court ruling segregation unconstitutional. And, and I love this. She was later quoted as saying, people often say I didn't get up out of my seat because I was tired. But that's not true. The only tired I was, was tired of giving in. I love that. Now, if it had just been that one woman refusing to give up her seat, she may have just become another martyr in the story of segregation. But we're better together when we stand for what God stands for. And that ripple effect changed the tide in our culture. And until the pain of staying the same becomes more acute than the pain of change, nothing's going to happen. And I want to challenge you and challenge all of us together to not, to not buy into the temptation of diffusing the light of the gospel with things that are distracting or divisive, but to really not just live by the headlines, but to go to God's word and say, God, what are the issues that matter in your heart? What are the things you've called me to be a light in? What are the areas of my life that I'm supposed to add the, the God flavoring in the earth? The church has to be the light. We have to be a city on a hill. Jesus said a a city on a hill can't be hidden. It can't be hidden. I want to close in, in sharing this thought with you. Jesus said, he's talking about evangelism, like we're talking about this morning. Talking about being salt and being light in the earth. Jesus said to his disciples, don't you have a saying? It's still four months until the harvest. That was what their saying was. It's still four months until the harvest. But Jesus said, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. They're ripe for harvest right now. Church, as we, as we get grounded on a biblical foundation, as we understand that everything that we are and everything that we produce flows out And off of this foundation, we're going to do two things. Number one, we're going to have faith in Christ, even in the most difficult circumstances. Faith that is unshakable. Have you ever seen the the aftermath of a drastic earthquake or a tornado? And the helicopter flies over and shows us the devastation and it looks like everything's gone. But there you see squares of foundation all over the landscape, like patchwork. The Bible says everything that can be shaken will be shaken. But if we're building on a firm foundation of God's Word, we're going to have faith in Christ that's unshakable. And with that, as Colossians says, not only a faith in Christ, but a love for all of God's people. And if we can do that, 
If we can build on that foundation, we can have faith in God that is unshakable. And we can have love for all of God's people. Jesus said, here's what's going to happen. The world is going to know your mind. They're going to be attracted to it. Have you ever noticed in the life of Jesus that he always had multitudes pressing in around him? It's the way we ought to live out our faith. It ought to be infectious. It ought to be contagious because it's a light that can't be hidden. It's a city on a hill. And I want to pray for you this morning at the conclusion of this service. And we're going to pray something collective for all of us. But before we do that, I want to, I want you to pray a personal prayer for your own heart and your own life. And so I want to ask you, if you would, right where you're seated, can we just bow our heads all over this room and allow the Holy Spirit to just search our hearts? You personally are called to be the salt of the earth. You're to be the God flavoring in the earth, in your workplace, in your relationship with your friends. You're the preservative. You hold out the hope of grace, not judgment. Judgment comes when we're gone. We hold out the hope of grace. We're a preservative in the earth. And I just want to ask you to just let the Holy Spirit, before we rush out of here today, let the Spirit of God speak to you and deal with you about the light that you hold up, about the flavor that you're adding to the world around you. If you allow the light of the gospel to be diffused by issues that are divisive or by things that are just distracting and don't matter, ask the Holy Spirit with me right now. Say, God, would you... Would you begin to focus the light in my life? God, I'm asking you today, it's so easy for me to to get caught up in the headlines of what's happening in the world. And even to get caught up in the opinions of the experts of what is or should be happening in the church. But God, more than anything in this year, I want to I want to be so focused. I want to be able to say like the Apostle Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. God, let the light in my life not be diffused. Lord God, let the flavor of my life not be lost. I don't want to lose my saltiness. God, teach me how to build everything that I'm building on the firm foundation of your word. So that out of it will spring faith in you like never before. And love for all God's people. Maybe you're here today and and you haven't had love for all God's people. Can I just encourage you? This would be a great moment. To just ask God's forgiveness. Say, God, forgive me for being being narrow-minded. Forgive me for being prejudiced towards anyone because of their opinion, because of where they come from, because of what they look like, God. I want to have a Christ-centered gospel. A whosoever will may come gospel. Not a me-centered gospel that chooses who I love based on my own level of comfort. God, forgive me. Forgive me for not looking at everyone and assuming that they are still within the reach of grace. God, thank you for trusting me with the light. 
Thank you for calling me the salt of the earth. Church, I want to invite you this morning. Can we all just stand together for a moment? There's something compelling that God wants to come out of this church. Something more compelling than one voice. Something more compelling than what we can accomplish doing church together on a weekend. I just want us to pray a prayer of agreement today and ask God to use us. Even in in a week... Just yesterday, I'm watching the news and people are marching on Washington and who knows what fiascos we have coming in the next five days. But let's let the church hold up the light that matters, the light that leads to salvation. Can we just come in agreement today? Father God, we just thank you for positioning us, Lord, in this community. Thank you for positioning us in our in our workplace, in our neighborhoods. God, thank you for positioning us in this nation for this time to be your light in the earth. God, thank you that you're not slow in keeping your promises, but you are patient. God, thank you that you've given us this day, another moment to share the light and the love of Jesus. God, help us not to squander it. If there's someone we need to talk to this week, if there's someone we need to have a conversation about this week, Lord, let us not be distracted or divisive, God. But let the light and the love of Jesus Christ permeate our hearts and our lives. God, as people see this church operating within these walls and outside of these walls, may they be attracted to the love that we have for all God's people. God, may we be known as a church for what we're for more than we are for what we're against. Help us to keep the main thing, the main thing, God. And may our lives... Bring your flavor into every avenue, into every venue that we find ourselves. Thank you, Lord God, for putting your light in our hearts. In Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. 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 Listen, just before.